Welcome to the show, friends, neighbors, comrades. Uh, today is my new book, Church of Cowards, which you can see displayed very uh, tactfully and, and subtly beside me, is finally released. And I want to talk about why I wrote it and uh, what problem I, I hope it addresses. Also, the issue of student loan debt is center stage in many ways this campaign season. I think it's going to be one of the central issues of the 2020 election, um, and it's central to the rise of Bernie Sanders. So I want to discuss that, and uh, specifically one of the biggest villains in the story of, of student debt, one group that is among the most responsible for driving the crisis, yet has escaped somehow, for the most part, the public's wrath. So I want to draw attention to that group and talk about that. Uh, also, we'll do a roundup of five other news headlines worth knowing about, and a surprising person today must be canceled on the show. I have to cancel someone who I, it brings me no joy at all to cancel them, but I must do it. And we'll get to all of that coming up. But first, let's check with Ancestry DNA. You know, there are many paths to finding your family story, whichever way you choose, tracing your family generation, uh, generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity uh, with Ancestry DNA. It's easy to get started with Ancestry. And that's one of the things I want to highlight is just how easy this is to do. I know when I did it, it seemed kind of daunting at first. I thought it'd be a whole complicated process. It's really not. It's very quick and easy to do. Uh, and then, you know, Ancestry DNA, it tells you where your ancestors are from. And also billions of, of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. So it's not just about the geographic locations, although that's very interesting part of this. It's also about their stories and, and, and who they were and what they were like. So you could find out you have an infamous relative or you could you know, find a photo of your great-great-grandmother as a little girl. Um, many, many possibilities. Whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and also yourself. Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins. They can provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. And that was my experience with it. As I said, uh, a, a, a very easy process. And uh, it's just been fascinating to see, kind of discover more about who I am. And what I've discovered is that, and I think this is what everyone finds out, is that your family history is, is much more interesting and complicated and diverse uh, than you ever expected. That certainly has been my experience. So you could start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash Matt to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com slash Matt. Ancestry.com slash Matt. Okay, my book, Church of Cowards, released today. That is uh, my, my second book. Um, and I can tell you that after two books, I very much relate to, I think it was a quote from Dorothy Parker originally who said, uh, I hate writing, but I love having written. And that's very much my feeling on the day of a book release. It's a feeling of, I'm, I'm so glad that's over. And to be perfectly honest with you, this book I found especially difficult to write in some ways. And the reason is that it's, a, it's an emotionally draining topic. Um, one that I think we all may prefer at times to turn away from and ignore, but we can't as, as Christians, we can't do that. Um, we have to face it. And that's why I wrote the book and I hope you'll go to Amazon and buy it. Or, you know, if you're old fashioned, you can go to an actual bookstore and, and pick up a physical copy there and, and buy it that way as well. Now I call this book, a church of cowards, a wake up call to complacent Christians because I believe that cowardice and complacency um, is, is the cancer, the poison that has seeped into the church in America. Now, you compare our situation to that of Christians in so many other parts of the world, especially in the Middle East, parts of Africa, parts of Asia, 
uh, particularly North Korea, places like that. In those regions, Christians are directly, violently, bloodily persecuted, killed, martyred, thrown into concentration camps in, in, in a place like North Korea. And yet, yet the faith itself, for those who remain alive and, and free, the faith is vibrant and strong and surviving, persisting. Christians in those countries really believe, it seems. Here, though, you know, we're under no real threat of violence, no threat of, of, of that kind of direct violent persecution. You can go to church on Sunday with minimal concern, perhaps not no concern, but minimal that, that your physical safety um, and the safety of your family will be, will be in jeopardy. And you can live your life as a Christian, go about your day, generally speaking, proclaim your faith. You can shout it from the rooftop if you, if you want. And for the most part, the most you're going to face, at worst, is uh, snide remarks, maybe, from, from strangers. Insults. Maybe some frowny face emojis will be tossed in your direction on Facebook. And yet, in this country, people are leaving the faith in droves. Uh, our, you know, the, the situation is worse really than the statistics would show. Because if you look at the statistics, you'll find that the percentage of Christians has dropped over the years, but it will say, depending on what you, where you look, it'll say that there are what, 80%, you know, 80% or, or something of, of, of the American population is still Christian. Well, that's a smaller number than, than it was before. But, but even that number, I think we all know is not accurate. It's not really 80%. Not really 80% of people who are truly believing Christians on fire with the faith, right? Um, but if you do look at the polls and the surveys, and I cite a number of them in the book, you see that increasing numbers of Christians are, are denying basic doctrinal tenets of Christianity. Um, we, we see that our children, the younger generation, they're not remaining in the faith. They're leaving, oftentimes around, the, around college age. Now, why should we, in our comfort and our luxury, be falling apart as a church? While the Christian communities that have every external reason to fall apart are not. Well, I think it comes down to complacency. We're sort of drifting along. Uh, we don't have to think much about our faith, about religion, about our mortality. We don't have to make sacrifices. You know, Christ says, pick up your cross and, and follow me, but we feel like we don't have to. Why should we? Because life is comfortable. Life is supposed to be comfortable, we believe. And, uh, you know, I'd rather just, I'd, I'd rather leave the, the cross outside, go inside and, and watch Netflix or something. And so there's a spiritual atrophy that happens. Now, many leaders of the church will not jolt people out of this stupor. They're not going to call their flocks to deeper and more authentic faith. They're not going to call their flocks to repentance because they don't want to scare people. They don't want to upset anybody. They don't want to run against the cultural grain. They're cowards. But their cowardice doesn't pay off on any level, really, because what they find is that their reluctance to challenge the people that are sitting in the pews only leads to those people being, people being bored to death and deciding that there's really no reason for them to go to church or to remain active in the faith or to pay attention to Christianity at all, if this is all it has to offer. You know, there's a reason why the conservative and orthodox churches tend to be younger, more vibrant, bigger, healthier, more energetic. 
because those churches give people a reason to come, right? They give people an experience that is distinct from the culture, an experience that has a, a purpose, a direction. But of course, if you take your church in that direction, there's going to be, there might be initially a, a purge that happens first. There's going to be growing pains where first the lukewarm Christians who are in the pews are scared away. So you're going to lose those people. Before you gain more, you're going to lose those people. And that's okay because it's better for lukewarm Christians to run away, to leave, uh, to confront who they are and what they really believe for their own sake. As I say that we, we say is 80% of Christians in this country. I don't know what the real number is. It's not 80%. What is it? 10%? 20? 5%? I'm not sure. That's a thing. Nobody knows. But it would be, it'd be better to get down to that core so we know where we stand as a church. And then we can build from there. Now, I go into detail about these issues in the book. I also offer what I think is a, a, a prescription, a part of a, a solution. And that takes me many pages to explain, so you'll have to read it. Um, but I will say that it begins with, I think, us as, as Christians calling each other and calling ourselves to a faith that is active, that is lived, that's authentic, that's distinct, that's noticeable uh, to the outside world. Because to believe, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book, to believe in, in Jesus, you know, um, part of the problem is we, I, I think we have our, our concept of what that even means in the West is, uh, is very superficial. I think to believe in Jesus is, is not just an intellectual proposition. It's not, it's not merely an assent to a, a fact. Uh, it's not just saying, yes, Jesus is God. I agree with that statement. That's not faith. That's, that's agreement. That's acknowledgement. Is that all we're meant to do is just acknowledge something and say, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Uh, I think faith is lived. Faith is something that we do. It's a, it's a, it's a, an act. It's like love. You know, uh, you love your spouse, and I think we would all agree. We, we say we love our, our spouses. It's not merely something we feel. Even less is it a, a fact that we acknowledge. Yes, we acknowledge them. We we know they exist, but that's not what loving them means. Uh, it's something that we do. It's a sacrifice that we make. It's a daily task. And the doing, the acting, the living, it's not that you prove your love that way. That's not, the, that's not what it is. It's that you love that way. That's how you do it. That's what love is. And I think love for God is the same. Faith is the same. It's not something that you can entirely do while lying on your couch covered in Cheetos dust at all hours of the day. So, uh, this is a call to an active, lived, public faith, and that's really just the beginning of it. Uh, I talk in the book also about the concept of repentance. I talk about, as Christians, our interaction with the culture and the need to balance being in the culture with protecting ourselves from its temptations. I talk about you know, the reality of evil. I talk about virtue, false virtues that are often sold in the modern church versus real virtues, and uh, many other things as well. Church of Cowards, go buy it uh, right now. I demand. Okay. So next, uh, we're going to discuss student loans. And uh, as I said, the villain in the story that often escapes our wrath. But first, let's run through a, a little lightning round of other headlines worth knowing about uh, to get you up to speed. 
Number one, we got five uh, uh, stories here. Number one, at a town hall yesterday, Bernie Sanders was asked about the fact that he's an old geezer. Uh, a person in the audience wanted to know if he's going to pick a running mate because, you know, he's going to die soon. That wasn't directly said, but that's, of course, the, the implications. And uh, Bernie had a, an interesting response. This is what he said. Um, and yes, the answer is we will do that. Uh, but it's a little bit presumptuous right now. I will tell you one thing, though, uh, you know, is uh, that person will not be an old white guy. That I can say definitively. Right? Okay, now here's, here's, a, here's a question nobody in the media will ever ask. Hey, Bernie, if you have a problem with old white guys and you think old white guys shouldn't be in power, then why don't you, an old white guy, drop out and throw your support behind someone who is not an old white guy? I mean, how do you, an old white guy, justify trying to prevent a woman or a younger person or a minority from becoming president? Because that's what you're doing. You right now, Bernie Sanders, you say, oh, I'm not going to have an old white vice president. Okay, but you are right now actively trying to prevent a woman from becoming president. I mean, Elizabeth Warren's a woman, and she even has all the same ideas you do. You're trying to prevent her. How do you explain that? Uh, but, of course, that question will never be asked, precisely because there's no good answer that Bernie could provide, and so the media is not going to ask it. Number two, a website called TheRecount.com has put together an interesting compilation, which, which, which seems to give more ammunition to those who claim that Pete Buttigieg is trying to be the white Obama. Look at this. The way we when do we every actually, other election, by giving it place. to the person who got the most votes. Just, Just a thought. thought brings us because together. This, now, country this country was, was built. And it is a movement cools. reaching into and church basements and barbershops and in our schools. into universities and, and with our kids. Halls. And if the boys can change the neighborhoods and we can change the, the city, city. shine as a beacon around the world. the world once more. And, and this, this is, is our, our chance, chance to, to answer that call. Now, when Pete releases his birth certificate to prove that he wasn't born in Kenya, then we're really going to know that this is a, a copycat situation. Number three, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein has been found uh, guilty on two counts, rape and a criminal sex act. So he faces five to 29 years in prison. Now, I've seen some media people congratulating themselves for all the good work the media did in exposing Harvey Weinstein. Uh, this is the, the level of self-awareness that the media has. They were the ones who refused to report on Weinstein's predatory behavior for decades literally decades. Remember, it was an open secret. Everybody knew. So he's going to jail now, but he should have went to jail years and years ago. And if he had, uh, there, there are many women who were victimized who would not have been. Hollywood protected him. The media protected him. Let's not forget that. Number four, Pixar has a new movie coming out. Uh, this one is called Onward. It comes out, I think this weekend, or maybe next weekend. It, it's about, from what I can tell from the previews, it's about two trolls who have to bring their dad's legs to a magical wizard or something so that they can retrieve his torso and the rest of him. That is, that is actually the plot of the movie, or something like that. It's unique, at least. I'll give them that. But Pixar is, uh, here's the, the not-so-unique part. They're really going for the woke points on this one because this film will feature Pixar's first-ever lesbian. There's going to be a lesbian uh, character, and we're told that her lesbianism will be made explicitly clear. Hopefully not too explicit. This is a kid's movie after all, but you never know these days. I, I will never understand this idea, this claim that there aren't enough gay characters in movies and on TV, so we have to keep adding them in 
And every time we do, there's cause for celebration. You know, it seems to me, based on my own anecdotal experience, from what I've seen, there's a gay character on almost every TV show now. And every year there are movies about gay love affairs that are getting awards and so on and so on. So how much of this do we need before we can say that gay people are represented? Is it, is it, is it enough yet? Can we officially say they've been represented or do we need, I'm just, what exactly is the, is the quota we're shooting for? That's my only question. Uh, finally, five scientists have discovered the first known animal that doesn't breathe. Uh, which, which I find very interesting. It has no respiratory genes at all, which sets it apart, sets it apart from every other multicellular organism that we're aware of. Uh, this creature is, according to LiveScience.com, a gelatinous parasitic blob. So, anyway, I'm surprised to find out that Michael Moore doesn't have lungs. It's um, that was a cheap shot, but. Honestly, his, his name was the first one that popped into my head when I read Gelatinous Parasitic Blob. It's not my fault. No offense intended. No offense. No offense. But uh, that's just the first thing that popped into my head. All right. Um, now, I want to talk about, as, as I said, this, this student loan issue. Um, there are many villains in the story of, of the student debt bubble. The universities that charge exorbitant tuition rates simply because they can, bilking working families out of thousands of dollars for an education that isn't worth even a fraction of that cost, uh, they should be first in line to absorb the blame. And it seems like somehow they're not. At least when you listen to somebody like Bernie Sanders talk about it, he's not pointing so much to the universities themselves. Because, you know, on the far left, you don't want to upset academia because we want to to trust academia. So, but I think they're first in line. I'd blame them first, but it's a long line indeed. The government has earned a hefty portion of our collective scorn for issuing these predatory loans to kids fresh out of high school with no assets, no income. And then blame goes to the public Schools who are were funneling kids into the university system indiscriminately, regardless of an individual kid's uh, aptitudes and skill set, just pushing them all into to colleges. Parents as well are, are adding to the pressure, which I'm convinced for many parents, pressuring their kids into four-year institution, it has m- as much to do with, with the, the parents' own vanity as it does their concern for their, for their child. I'm not saying they're not concerned for their child, but I think part of it, at least, is that the parent wants to be able to say, my kid is going to such and such school. Parent doesn't want to say, my kid's not in college. But there's another group. So we can thank all of those people for the $1.5 trillion in student debt. There's another group, though, that seems to have largely somehow escaped the public's wrath, despite their unique role in driving this problem, and that would be employers. We take it for granted that our kids need, quote unquote, to obtain a college degree because so many jobs require them, but the need is artificial. In the vast majority of cases, thousands of employers across the country have chosen to artificially inflate their job requirements, uh, often demanding that applicants have, have, have degrees for positions that absolutely do not really necessitate them. And they've chosen to do this, and it's only getting worse. You know, uh, positions that didn't require any degree 20 years ago now require a bachelor's degree, and positions that required a bachelor's degree 20 years ago now require a master's. 
And you know, before you know it, you're going to need to have a, a, a PhD to be a sales associate at uh, JCPenney. This again is, is artificial. People without degrees could perform the tasks necessary for most of these positions, but employers disqualify them from consideration right out of the gate and for no good reason. Now, obviously, and every time I talk about this, there are, I, 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 I hear from people saying, what about doctors and lawyers? And Yes, obviously, some jobs do require additional formal schooling, but not every job does and not even most jobs. Nobody is suggesting that a guy with a high school diploma should be hired right off the street by Johns Hopkins to perform brain surgery. No one is suggesting that. But most jobs outside of science and medicine have to be learned by doing. You know, uh, the, the vast majority of people who right now have a job, any job, outside of science and medicine, almost everything they're doing right now I mean, including you, if you're listening to this and you have a job and that is not that that's not in the science and medicine field, most likely, if you think about it, everything you do in your job, you learned how to do in the job itself. Or these were skills that you brought in um, uh, uh, on your own that had nothing to do with schooling whatsoever. That's how most jobs are learned. They're learned by doing. Now, it's not as though one excuse you hear is, well, companies are saving money on, on having to tra train new hires by requiring the, the, the college degree. And so this is about saving money. That's not the case. The companies still have to train the college graduates. You know, these employers are, are discovering to their shock somehow that, you know, when, when, a, when, when someone comes in at the age of 23 and they've been in a classroom their whole life and haven't done anything, you still have to train them just as much as you would have to train someone without a college degree. So what's the point of the degree? It, it serves no purpose, no function. Um, now, it might be argued that employers look for the degree because even if the degree is in dance theory or comparative religion, it at least proves that the applicant is competent and hardworking and so on. Well, I, you know, I, I would like to see some research, research supporting that assumption because I don't believe it. I see no reason to conclude that college grads are any smarter, any more competent, any harder working than non-college grads. I understand that that's maybe the assumption that employers are making. I'm saying it's a bad assumption. I'm saying it's an assumption based on nothing. In fact, I would wager that the scales probably tip the other way. Because a 23-year-old who's been working and supporting himself since the age of 18 has already demonstrated at a minimum that he has the basic life skills necessary to be a functioning adult in society. There are many college grads who don't even have that. Because if you graduate college with, with, with a, a bachelor's degree, congratulations, not taking anything away from you. But it doesn't prove that you know how to do anything. It doesn't prove you have any skills at all. It doesn't prove that you're a functioning adult. It doesn't really prove anything. You know, what it proves in and of itself, in and of itself, all the degree, if, if you tell me, if, if, all, if the only information I have about someone is they have a college degree, you tell me that, you know, Bob Smith has a college degree. What does that tell you about Bob Smith? That the only thing it tells you is that he either had the money to get a college education or he was willing to take on the debt. That's the only thing it tells you. Now, it might be that, that Bob Smith is a brilliant guy, a hard worker, so on and so forth. 
What I'm saying, though, is that the fact of the degree doesn't tell you that. You got to look deeper into who Bob Smith is. But if we're looking deeper into who people are, then why can't you do that with non-college grads? Well, we all know the truth, I think. Employers demand the high-priced degrees for entry-level positions, entry-level positions that, in many cases, a moderately intelligent monkey could learn in less than a week. The reason why they, they require it is that it's, it's just out of laziness. The degree requirement is a way to call the herd of applicants to whittle things down a little bit, making it easier to sift through. It's just, a, you know, that's all. It's just, it's just sort of, you, you got a stack of 100 um, applications or resumes, and you just, you, you toss 50 of them out just because it, it's hard to go through 100. You'd rather go through 50. And, and that's basically the reason. That's why these, these employers do it. If qualified applicants are tossed to the side, that's a sacrifice the employer is willing to make for the sake of streamlining the process. But if it wasn't for the demands of these lazy, the the, the arbitrary demands of these lazy HR departments who don't feel like doing their jobs, don't feel like actually evaluating applicants based on the individual merits of the people who are coming in for the job, if it wasn't for that, Kids out of high school may not feel the need to take on crushing debt just to obtain a piece of paper that may only ever function as a symbolic calling card that prevents their resume from automatically being thrown in the trash. It's crazy. It's crazy that we that we tolerate this as a society, that we just take it for granted that this is the way it is. Perhaps the companies that unjustly discriminate against competent workers who lack a piece of paper should finally start absorbing some of the scorn and the blame that we directed everybody except them. Now, yes, they have every right to come up with whatever unnecessary and expensive job requirements they want, but, but they deserve to be named and shamed for it. They should have to explain. You know, these companies that are requiring degrees for jobs that will 100% be learned on the job regardless, they should have to explain why they're doing that. They should have to give us a good reason. I don't think they can. They can't. It's pure laziness. And as I said, we accept it because that's just the way it is. We say that's the way it's always been. That's the way. It's not the way it's always been. This is a very new thing that we've decided. It's very new, very recent in modern history. We've decided that if you want to get a, a, a basic job that, that anyone could do, you need you first need... Uh, you know, uh, 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 f- four years at a, at a university and you need to spend $90,000 on a degree. That's, that's it's, it's not always been this way. There's no reason why it needs to be this way. We've just decided that it will be. And uh, I think we should probably make other decisions. Okay, now I want to give a shout out to all of our Daily Wire members. You guys are the ones that keep us in business here. Uh, we love making content that matters and while we're on the front lines of the culture war, we know that we can't do it without your support. So if you're if you're still skeptical about joining the Daily Wire, a reader's pass is a great way to start, and it's a great value. A reader's pass will enable news junkies to read our articles ad-free, including op-eds from Ben Shapiro, which are exclusive to Daily Wire members only. You get access to our mobile app, which has uh, really become popular with all of our members, and you can read all of our stories on mobile. And you also receive uh, push notifications for breaking news, special content, it's perfect for when you want to stay up to date on the go. This membership tier is already at a bargain at $3 a month. 
It's hard to get cheaper than that, but it just did get cheaper than that. Right now, we're offering one month at 99 cents. That's mobile, ad-free uh, access to all of our Daily Wire news exclusive op-eds from D Ben Shapiro, breaking news and updates on our mobile app, and um, all for the low price of $1, less than a dollar. So give it a shot. It's worth it. And now um, it's time for our daily cancellation. And, and today, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that I have to cancel someone and I have to cancel myself. Um, I am canceled. And I wish I didn't have to be canceled, especially on the day that my book comes out. It's not, not, a, not a very advantageous time. But I have no choice. There's, of course, a list of reasons five light years long for why I should be canceled. And I have been canceled time and time again. The reason this time, though, is that um, this weekend, for the second time in as many weeks, I managed to dump a whole cup of coffee in a Starbucks, a whole venti cup of coffee, dumped on the ground, splattered everywhere, everywhere. If, you ever, if you've ever spilled something in public, you know that somehow it, it manages, it's like it defies the laws of physics. And you dump it, and in 100 feet away, there's, there's, there's splatters still. So it's, that's what I did. Um, and in fact, I have, and this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but it's really not. I have now spilled an entire cup of coffee in a Starbucks five times in the last year. Five times. This is my fifth time doing it. All in different locations. I'm like a terrorist on a, on a, on a spilling spree all across the, the eastern seaboard. Now, I'm not doing it on purpose. I am just a very clumsy and awkward person. And I have long limbs that I can't control. So I'm, when, I, when I walk, I'm just flailing all over the place, knocking things over everywhere I go. I'm like a drunken Gumby, basically, barreling around. Although I have to say that Starbucks, in fairness to me, Starbucks should be partially canceled as well. This is partially their fault because part of the problem is, yes, I'm a bumbling oaf, that's true, but their tables are so small. So I'm, I'm sitting at their thumbtack-sized table, and I've got my, my laptop, and I got the cup of coffee. I move my laptop slightly, cup knocks over. This has happened five times already the last year. And then there's the awkward thing of, I have to go to the counter and tell them that I spilled something. And then I always offer to clean it, but it's more symbolic because I know that they, they can't accept my offer, so they have to send the, the girl out with the mop and uh, then there's the even more awkward thing where I have to ask for another coffee because I still need my coffee. Let's be real here. And then as the girl is mopping it up, I just slink out the other door and disappear into the fog, never to be seen again. Though nothing could be worse, I and mean, that was bad enough, nothing could be worse than the time, and this happened in the past year also, um, the time when I dropped a bottle of red wine in the grocery store. Uh, uh, as I was, I was going up to pay for it, I dropped it. Red wine everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And the guy came up, the employee came up, and, and he saw it. And these were his exact words. He said, oh, my God. Just like that. You, you never want that reaction when you're out in public from, from anybody for any reason. Um, and I, you know, I, I tried to, to I, I admit, I tried to pass the buck a little bit. I said, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what I don't know what happened. I think the, the glass in your wine bottles is kind of weak. You guys have a weak glass problem. I, you should probably look into that. I don't know what, you know, someone could get hurt. I don't know. Well, I don't know how this happened. It was, it was not me. I mean, it just happened. And then again, I left. And I never, I never returned to the places where I spill things. Um, at this point, my options of places where I can go has, has been severely limited. So that's why I, unfortunately, have to be canceled. I, I, don't, I don't exempt myself from the canceling, and I never would do that. 
But I, uh, I, I, I forge on ahead anyway, in spite of being canceled. All right, let's go to emails. We'll read a few emails now. This is a, a Matt Walsh Show at gmail.com. Matt Walsh Show at gmail.com is the email address. This is from Michael. Says, hey, Matt, as a former infantry Marine with two deployments to the Middle East, I appreciate your commenting on that story that the commandant of the, the Corps says that he has uh, new priorities. It's beyond dumb and is going to make the Corps more combat ineffective. Anyway, thanks for throwing that in there. Notice you haven't been answering questions on the show recently, but I'll ask a question anyway. When you rise to your rightful place as the supreme tyrannical dictator, will you allow the Marines and other services to grow beards while serving? Thanks, man. Love the show. Well, Michael, not only will I allow the Marines to grow beards, but I will require it. I think this should be a requirement. I believe that the prohibition of beards in the military is one of the great moral outrages that we currently face as a society. I also think it puts lives at risk because everybody knows that men become more, become stronger and more resilient as they grow uh, their facial hair. And so I think, look, you go back to the, the Civil War and there were glorious facial hair styles on display. In fact, back in those days, it was understood that one of the primary roles of the military was to promote facial hair and model new facial hair styles. And I would like to get back to that point. So yes, absolutely. This is from uh, Matt. Says, Matt, as a fellow Matt, I have to say that you missed the mark on today's show when you stated that 10 years from now, nearly all leftists will be arguing in favor of pedophilia. Although the leftists are absurdly arguing that children can choose their own gender, I highly doubt that even a significant portion of leftists will actually advocate pedophilia. Yes, you could argue that if a five-year-old child has the mental and emotional capacity to choose his or her gender, then the natural extension of this is that they must have enough maturity to consent to sexual activity. However, I just don't buy it. There is no way that our society will allow things to progress that far. Although, as I type this, I realize that in 2010, I would have stated that 10 years from then, there is no way our society would be advocating that five-year-old boys could decide that they're actually five-year-old girls. Who knows? Maybe they are that crazy. Well, Matt, you said it yourself. 10 years ago, you could not have possibly imagined or predicted that 10 years in the future, in 2020, all leftists in the country, all of them, including, you know, in the mainstream, would Democrats, presidential candidates, would be saying that three-year-old boys can choose to become girls. You would not have predicted that. And if somebody had predicted that to you 10 years ago, you would have thought they were crazy. And so that should be enough reason to give you pause. When I talk about this, you know, you would have reacted 10 years ago to that the way you're reacting now when I talk about how 10 years in the future, the left's going to be advocating for pedophilia. There's a logical progression here. I'm not issuing some kind of prophecy based on a vision of the future I had in a dream. That's not what's happening here. I'm saying there's a logical conclusion. If children have the emotional and psychological capacity to decide to change their gender, if they have this capacity even as toddlers, and if their decisions should be respected so much and trusted so much that we even give them drugs to chemically castrate them to aid them in their transformation into girls, um, then it's not a far leap to say that they have the mental and emotional capacity uh, to consent to sex. If they can consent to a sex change, then why not a sex act? So yes, 10 years from now, we will be told that we need to respect the lifestyle choices of adults who have sex with children. That's what we're going to be told. We're going to be told that children are perfectly able to consent and that um, if they want to be in these relationships, we should respect it. And it's bigotry for us to, to, to do otherwise. That's where we're headed. Um, and uh, unless, unless we as a culture revolt against this, this, this nonsense and, and, and put a stop to it. But if we let it continue on the path it's going, that's where it goes. 
Finally, this is from Connor says, Matt, I read your article about blaming employers for the debt problem. You sound like a socialist yourself. First of all, employers have the right to make these decisions. What happened to the right of business owners? Second, it is perfectly valid for them to focus on college graduates. They will know that college graduates at least have basic literacy and are capable of completing tasks. Your rant was silly. Well, Connor, I never said that employers don't have the right. Okay, so I'm talking about what is the right thing to do. I'm not talking about what we have the right to do. This is a, 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 two different concepts, so that's completely irrelevant. Second, I need a, a citation needed, okay? You say that college graduates are going to be better able to complete tasks and they have basic literacy. Well, as far as basic literacy, you can easily tell that. You don't need a college degree to tell that someone's basically, basically literate. It, just by interviewing them and by looking at their resume, that should be enough to tell you. And, and you know, if, if you need, how about adding an additional step, an additional test? You could, you could even just uh, have a, a brief questionnaire with essay-style answers talking about why, you know, asking applicants to, to explain why they want the job or why, the, why they're, they'd be fitted, best suited for the job. And just based on that, you, you can tell that they're literate or not, and you can tell a lot about their intelligence. As far as being able to complete tasks, well, call me crazy, but if somebody has work experience, if they've been at a job, especially a, a related job for a number of years, that tells me they can complete tasks. They can do things. It tells me, tells me more than a degree does. You know, you've got two candidates. One has been in college the last four years. The other has been working in the working world. You're telling me that the former, the college grad, has better proven his ability to, to work, to do things, to complete things? How so? You know, I, I mean, if the other guy, even if the other guy's been at McDonald's for the last four years, well, that tells me that he's reliable. He gets up and he comes to work. He's trainable. He's teachable. Uh, th there's a number of things you can tell right away. And you can also call up his boss and ask him. So the point is, for most of these jobs, there's just no good reason to rule out non-college grads. Plenty of them could be better suited, could be better workers than college graduates. The only reason they're ruled out for, for the job is, as I said, laziness. And um, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's enough of a reason. I, I, don't, I don't think the, the need that employers have just to streamline a process and not put any effort into it, I don't think that's a good enough reason to justify $1.5 trillion in student debt. That's my point. And we will leave it there. Again, my book, Church of Cowards, is out now. Please go buy it, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Danny D'Amico, audio mixer Robin Fenderson. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2020. If you prefer facts over feelings, aren't offended by the brutal truth, and you can still laugh at the insanity filling our national news cycle, well, tune in to The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get a whole lot of that and much more. See you there.